0: Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of animal death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: On February 14th, 2001, astronaut Tom Jones looked out the window at the International Space Station.
0: Watching white clouds glide over Earth, Tom felt a multitude of emotions. He thought of all the other American spacewalks that came before his, exactly 99 of them.
1: America's 100th spacewalk was an incredible milestone, not only for Tom, but for the entire NASA space program. For 42 years, it had pushed the boundaries of what was possible. Now, Tom's walk would cement their place in history as a groundbreaking agency.
0: Tom gulped, readying himself for the journey. In his head, he rehearsed a few words he'd say to mark the occasion.
1: But he was interrupted by a private message from pilot Mark Polanski on his headset. NASA Mission Control Houston had just alerted him that their count was off.
0: Tom's trek would not be the 100th American spacewalk. He would be the 101st. They'd miscounted. Tom was flabbergasted. Why
1: did it take them so long to catch this mistake? Was it really an error? Or did the calculations include a secret spacewalk that no one was supposed to know about?
0: Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, You can
1: find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
0: This is our first episode on the secrets of NASA. For decades, the American Space Agency has continued to push the boundaries of what's possible into the extraordinary. Unfortunately, the access they have to the cosmos also might mean they've been working on covert and possibly unethical projects.
1: So today, we'll look at NASA's history, from its Cold War era beginning to its triumph on the moon, and we'll see how the lunar landing inspired a whole new interest in extraterrestrials.
0: Next time, we'll analyze three conspiracy theories about the clandestine nature of NASA and whether it's hiding something much bigger. While some people believe the agency is too closely aligned with the military— Others are convinced it knows far more about alien life and strange space occurrences than it lets on.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T E R M I N I X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, visit BetterHelp.com/conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp,
2: H-E-L-P.com/conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be with a personalized plan and expert coaching anytime fitness can help make the gym less frightening get more for your gym membership than machines get personalized support anytime anywhere visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today terms conditions and restrictions apply see website for details
0: by 1950 the cold war was in full swing just a year earlier U.S. President Harry Truman announced that the Soviet Union had successfully tested its first nuclear bomb.
1: And ever since, the United States and the USSR had been trying to one-up each other. In 1952, the U.S. tested the first hydrogen bomb, cementing its authority as a hegemonic nuclear power
0: then in 1954 the soviet union established the kgb the spy agency rivaling the cia which would strike fear in the minds of american politicians and citizens alike for years
1: it was a game of cat and mouse the u.s would take two steps forward only for the soviets to catch up just months later still even with its world-class spy force and growing military, many people were sure the Soviet Union couldn't compete with America's technological capabilities.
0: Until October 4, 1957.
1: This is, this at 10.28 p.m. Moscow time that night, four boosters ignited at the Baikonur Cosmodrome in the USSR. Soviet officials watched with trepidation as a 98-foot rocket flew off the launch pad.
0: 116 seconds later, the booster separated and the rocket's second-stage core engine was activated, pushing the spacecraft higher and higher.
1: Finally, a third-stage engine went off, launching a 184-pound metal sphere into Earth's orbit. It was about the size of a beach ball, but it contained a small battery-powered radio transmitter. It was Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite in space.
0: On the ground, Soviet engineers rushed from the launch site to a nearby radio station. There, they waited anxiously to see if the satellite completed its first orbit of Earth. Approximately 90 minutes later, the radio station received a transmission from space.
1: Sputnik 1 had successfully rounded the planet.
0: The group of technicians cheered and embraced, marveling at their victory.
1: Sputnik 1's triumph surprised the world and also dealt a serious blow to American pride. People wondered if the US was falling behind. Maybe it wasn't the most advanced country in the world anymore
0: the public nervously considered what Sputnik 1 meant for the United States. Many feared that if the Soviets could send a metal ball to space, they were also ahead of the curve with their nuclear technology. Soon, Americans feared that the USSR could soon have an ICBM, Intercontinental Nuclear Ballistic Missile, ready to attack from thousands of miles away, something even the U.S. hadn't developed yet.
1: To quell Americans' anxiety, U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower tried to downplay the importance of the Sputnik successful launch. He claimed that it was, quote, one small ball in the
0: air. In other words, nothing for Americans to worry about.
1: But privately, his administration was working round the clock to catch up with the Soviets. The Navy ramped up their mission called Project Vanguard, which focused on launching an American space satellite.
0: Two months after Sputnik 1 successfully rounded the Earth, Vanguard engineers gathered at Cape Canaveral Air Force Base to launch America's first satellite into space. The thin, 44-foot-tall launch vehicle was called Test Vehicle 3, or TV3, and contained a lightweight satellite roughly six inches in diameter. As people on
1: site watched in anticipation, the rocket's boosters ignited with gray
0: smoke. Bright orange flames burned at the base. Then the spacecraft began to rise, raising four feet off the launch pad and into the air. Before crashing to the ground and erupting into a
1: fiery explosion.
0: Unfortunately for the U.S. government, most of America quickly knew about the rocket's failure.
1: Newspapers around the world wrote about the disastrous launch, soon earning the nickname Flopnik. The entire episode became a national embarrassment, especially for a country touting its status as the superior world leader.
0: But Vanguard's failure didn't discourage America's space ambitions. Instead, it forced the government to reconsider how it was competing with the Soviets. Perhaps the U.S. needed more resources than a naval mission could offer to do this work.
1: So, on July 29, 1958, Congress and Eisenhower created the National Aeronautics and Space Agency, or NASA. It was designated as a single civilian space organization.
0: This distinction between military and civilian organizations is important. While the Vanguard project previously existed under the Navy, many scientists didn't want space exploration efforts to remain there. They feared if NASA was a military organization, the research would only benefit the military.
1: As its own new entity, NASA would be in direct competition with the Soviet space program. So, to take on the USSR, NASA absorbed all military space programs under its roof, including the Navy's Project Vanguard. And in
0: 1958, only a year after its creation, Eisenhower tasked the agency with its first major assignment. Launch a human being into orbit before the Soviets. Coming up...
1: The space race lands in the hands of an astronaut and a Nazi
3: scientist. Behind every missing person is a story to be told. Look closely at the details and you may just find the answers. Find the answers, find the truth. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases, tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. From the tragedies of Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh Jr. to the mysterious circumstances surrounding Tierra Williams and the Iguala Mass kidnapping, each week on Disappearances, we're spotlighting the stories you thought you knew, And the ones you'll be shocked to discover. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The truth is out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.
0: This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix.
1: Now, back to the story.
0: In late 1958, President Dwight Eisenhower gave NASA its first assignment. Send a human into orbit and have them return to Earth safely and do it before the Soviets. The mission was called Project Mercury.
1: So NASA turned to a military rocket scientist named Werner von
0: Braun for the job who was brilliant, but had a deeply troubling early career. During World War II, von Braun was famous for being the chief of missile research for Nazi Germany.
1: While the US government certainly wasn't blind to this, they conceded that employing former Nazi military scientists and engineers to work on American technology was better than the Soviet Union snatching up those same men and benefiting from their expertise first.
0: Given von Braun's extensive work on the V2 rocket, the government wanted to use him to tap into its current passion, sending humans to space. Von Brown, who worked for the U.S. Army on weapons-grade rockets until a promotion to NASA in 1960, was meticulous in his approach. He knew he needed to create a rocket strong enough to carry a human into orbit and worked tirelessly to figure out the logistics. At first,
1: von Brown and his team failed at it a lot, but NASA remained resolute in their goal to get a man into space. So in April of 1959, the agency announced its first slate of astronauts, a team of seven military men, including the Marine Corps' John Glenn and the Navy's Alan Shepard.
0: And two years later, on March 24, 1961, Von Braun proved he had the tech to get them out of Earth's atmosphere. NASA finally achieved a successful unmanned test flight of the Mercury Redstone. It was time for human space flight. They just needed the right astronaut.
1: When NASA chose Alan Shepard for the job, he was more than willing to take on the task. The other astronauts were run-of-the-mill military guys, clean-cut, disciplined, and buttoned up. But Alan Shepard was different. He was a bad boy who loved cigars, martinis, and women. He lived for big adventures and risks.
0: And for this job, he needed a bit of that rebellious spirit. NASA's goal was dangerously ambitious. Breathable oxygen is in short supply in space. As they prepared for the flight, it was still unclear if a person could even survive the journey.
1: It also wasn't clear how the human body would function without Earth's gravity, or be affected by the stress of space travel. Previously, the Soviets launched a dog into space, but she died after liftoff due to the spacecraft's 90-degree temperature, lack of oxygen, and food.
0: And if putting a dog into space failed, it seemed nearly impossible to launch a human there and bring them home alive. After all, the rocket itself was new technology. Something could go very wrong and explode, killing Shepard and others involved.
1: In light of this, Von Braun and NASA wanted to err on the side of caution. He scheduled more tests, which delayed the launch for several months.
0: Alan Shepard wasn't pleased and grew impatient. His main priority was to beat the USSR and become the first man in space. He was convinced that the Soviets could catch up to them at any moment. And he was right. On April 12, 1961, at 9.07 a.m. Moscow time, the Soviets launched Vostok 1, a spacecraft made with a ballistic missile. And 27-year-old cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin sat at the top of the vessel.
1: The missile propelled Vostok into Earth's orbit, where Gagarin spent over 100 minutes. Then, gravity pulled him back down toward the ground. During his descent, he ejected himself from the capsule at 23,000 feet and pulled open his parachute.
0: After floating back down to the ground, alive, Gagarin became the first person to travel to space and return safely.
1: Once again, the USSR had beat the US to a space milestone.
0: In light of this feat, the mood in America was notably more desperate. Even President John F. Kennedy felt helpless. In an April 20th memo, he wrote, Do we have a chance at beating the Soviets? Is there any other American space program which promises dramatic results in which we could win? A week later, JFK's Vice
1: President, Lyndon B. Johnson, replied to his memo. In the document, Johnson admitted the Soviets had accomplished more space feats than the U.S., but pointed out they hadn't achieved one thing, landing on the moon.
0: LBJ suggested that if NASA could put all its efforts into making it there first, it'd help defeat the Soviets once and for all.
1: Which, while it sounded incredible, still came with one big caveat. It was going to take a lot of money. LBJ estimated it might need at least around $1 billion, every year. However big the price tag, JFK would take it to Congress, and NASA would keep pressing forward.
0: Three weeks later, on May 5, 1961, after many tests and delays, the Mercury Redstone booster launched Alan Shepard and the Freedom 7 into space. He exited the planet's gravity for about five minutes, but didn't quite make it into orbit. Instead, Shepard fell back down to Earth and landed in the Atlantic Ocean.
1: It was a bittersweet victory, because on one hand, in that 15-minute flight, Shepard officially became the second human to go to space. No small feat.
0: But on the other, it still paled in comparison to the Soviets, who of course did it first. To boost national morale, it was clear that Americans needed something even bigger, like LBJ suggested, send a man to the moon.
1: Suddenly, it seemed possible, especially with the U.S. government fully on board. By this point, House Committee on Science and Aeronautics chairman, Overton Brooks, wrote a memo to LBJ. In it, Brooks wrote that the committee approved of the U.S. doing whatever it took to become leaders in the space race, including spending billions of dollars.
0: Nearly three weeks later, on May 25th, 1961, JFK appealed to Congress to approve a massive increase in space spending.
1: To put a man on the moon served dual purposes. It would raise American morale and defeat the Soviets in space once and for all. To accomplish that, JFK asked Congress to fund NASA an extra $7 to $9 billion over the next five years.
0: Ultimately, Congress agreed, authorizing $1.8 billion for the space program in 1962 alone.
1: And over the next year or so, engineers and astronauts quickly made great strides with rockets and satellites. Most notably, in 1962, John Glenn became the first American to orbit Earth.
0: This progress was remarkable given how far they'd come in such a short time, and yet it was also a little underwhelming. It seemed like after the heightened panic of 1961, some Americans were starting to care less about how the space race affected the Cold War. By 1962,
1: the United States, USSR, and Cuba peacefully settled the Cuban Missile Crisis, And a year later, in 1963, the Soviet and American governments signed a treaty to severely limit nuclear bomb
0: testing. With tensions easing, it seemed like maybe the Soviets' desire to reach the moon was, too. In hindsight, we know that was all a front. The Soviets were conducting their own secret program to reach the moon.
1: Despite the fact that the Americans and Soviets sat on opposite sides of the world, both countries still ran into the same problem with their projects—money. A secret CIA memo released in 1966 valued the U.S. space program at $4 billion annually as of 1963, while estimating the USSR spent $2 billion a year in the same time span. The Americans constantly ran over budget while the Soviets struggled with mismanagement.
0: So with tensions thawing and costs rising, JFK made a surprising proposal during a United Nations speech on September 20th, 1963. He asked the USSR to team up for a joint space mission to the moon. USSR leader Nikita
1: Khrushchev didn't bite At first, he blatantly rejected the offer.
0: But as his son Sergei revealed to a space news site in 1997, Khrushchev had second thoughts a few months later. In the early 60s, the Soviets struggled to develop their manned rocket called N-1 due to money troubles and mechanical failures. Suddenly, the premier was interested in the partnership and saw it as an opportunity to harness American technology for the USSR.
1: By then, it was too late though. On November 22, 1963, JFK was assassinated, and his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, didn't extend the same olive branch. A year later, the Soviets forced Khrushchev to resign. Any chance of a partnership disintegrated.
0: And the space race was back on.
1: Over the next few years, both countries stayed on each other's heels as they made strides toward the moon. Each had a trajectory they needed to accomplish, which included testing what it'd be like to exit the capsule in space and taking a simple walk.
0: The Soviets got there first, in March of 1965. Two months later, in June of 1965, Gemini 4 launched American astronaut Ed White into Earth's orbit. When the spacecraft was steady, White opened the hatch and floated out into the cosmos while tied to a tether. Overlooking Earth's deep blue oceans, he completed the second spacewalk ever during a four-day journey.
1: With each successful manned spaceflight, NASA crews spent more time in the cosmos, inching towards the moon. And by 1967, the agency had sent several missions to test unmanned launchers and spacecraft on the lunar surface, over 230,000 miles away on average, just to see if they could survive.
0: When they did, one thing was clear. The time had come to test humans in the vessels.
1: A year later, NASA launched three American astronauts to circle the moon in distant lunar orbit— When the mission was a success, it further cemented the idea that NASA really could send a man to the moon.
0: By 1969, the stage was finally set for the first moon landing. But one question remained. Could they do it before the Soviets?
1: Coming up, an unexpected sighting on the
2: first moonwalk.
1: Now, back to the story.
0: For years, the Soviet Union and U.S. had competed for cosmic superiority. Though the Soviets had a number of early successes, like the Sputnik launch and Yuri Gagarin as the first man in space, by the late 1960s, it was unclear if they could sustain that momentum. Behind the scenes, the Soviet aerospace program dealt with a long list of problems, including chaotic management, lack of funding, and exploding equipment.
1: This stagnation ultimately led to the United States' first and biggest victory in the space race. On
0: July 16, 1969, the Apollo 11 mission carrying NASA astronauts Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. First, the spacecraft joined Earth's orbit, then used an S-4B booster engine to propel it toward the moon. And four days later, on July 20th, Armstrong and Aldrin became the first men to walk on the moon. As Armstrong
1: stepped onto the lunar surface, he narrated what it was like and said what would become his most famous quote. That's one small step for man,
0: one Two days after the moonwalk, the United States Information Agency estimated a total of 650 million people worldwide watched the moon landing live on TV.
1: At the time, it was the most watched event in television history. Everyone wanted to know more about the lunar heroes.
0: Much to their disappointment... Interviews or celebrations weren't the most pressing matters at hand. The men still had to get back to Earth safely.
1: After the world waited in great anticipation, on July 24th, the Apollo 11 astronauts returned home, splashing down in the Pacific Ocean. They landed 900 miles southwest of Hawaii, and a naval aircraft carrier called the USS Hornet brought them in aboard as planned. Then, Navy authorities ushered them into a small trailer for almost three weeks of quarantine.
0: Which was actually a part of the plan, too. See, at the time, scientists didn't know much about the moon and what was on it, they were worried the astronauts could potentially bring back alien microbes or germs. NASA even feared the crew could spread a lunar plague on Earth. Yet,
1: when the U.S. government disclosed the quarantine to the American public, people went into a tizzy.
0: As astronomer Seth Shostak told Live Science, the moon landing served as a lightbulb moment. For those interested in space travel, The mere suspicion of moon organisms sparked an intense debate about extraterrestrial life. It made them wonder. If humans could journey across the cosmos, why couldn't aliens?
1: And what one Apollo 11 astronaut saw on the spacecraft only added fuel to that fire. In the mid-1970s, NASA released the audio transcripts from Apollo 11. UFO enthusiasts latched onto one specific detail. In the radio transmissions, Buzz Aldrin reported seeing an unidentified object during the mission.
0: According to the transcripts, Aldrin spotted a light moving beside their spacecraft. It looked like a flattened cone with a long cylinder on top. NASA's official record stated that the S-4B booster detached from the main spacecraft and eventually flew by the moon.
1: And that's the story NASA and Aldrin stuck to for decades. Years later, Aldrin wrote on Reddit, quote, It was either the rocket we had separated from or the four panels that moved away when we extracted the lander from the rocket. I feel absolutely convinced that we were looking at the sun reflected off one of those panels.
0: Though this explanation hasn't stopped extraterrestrial believers from insisting that Aldrin actually saw a flying saucer.
1: As more NASA spacecraft explored the cosmos, people became more and more invested in the idea that something supernatural really was in the Earth's orbit.
0: And these theorists were only given more information to pore over, come 1976 when NASA was designing a new program involving famed astrophysicist Carl Sagan. That year,
1: NASA was working on the Voyager program, which would send two robotic probes into the solar system past Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune to investigate what was really out there.
0: Sagan and a team of scientists and technicians consulted NASA on the project, and proposed a way of communicating with extraterrestrials, should the probes encounter them.
1: The plan was simple. NASA would create a time capsule about human life on Earth via a vinyl record. This way, if the probes ever contacted other life forms, those creatures could learn about Earth and its inhabitants by playing the record.
0: Obviously, in hindsight, the plan had some flaws. After all... There's no reason to think that extraterrestrials would have a record player, let alone similar audio technology.
1: Or that they would even know what the large disc was. But for some reason, NASA approved the addition to the program in early 1977. It was a big step for an agency that previously denied finding any evidence of UFOs or
0: aliens. Sagan chaired a scientific committee to execute the project. Together, they gathered photos, music, animal, and natural sounds, along with spoken greetings in 55 languages. President Jimmy Carter and U.N. Secretary General Kurt Voltheim also wrote messages included in the endeavor.
1: All of these items were put onto two golden records for each probe, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And come August and September of 1977, NASA launched the apparatuses into space.
0: That was nearly 45 years ago. And so far, according to NASA, neither machine has come across aliens. But to some, that seems improbable. In the decades since, both Voyagers visited their target planets of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, along with 48 of their moons.
1: And after Voyager's success... Other manned and unmanned missions followed, making miraculous discoveries about our solar system. For instance, since 2012, rovers have been traversing Mars and sending back information about the Red Planet. Then, in 2015, the New Horizons Flyby spacecraft transmitted the first-ever close-up photos of the distant dwarf planet Pluto
0: nasa knows infinitely more about outer space now than in 1957 when the ussr launched sputnik 1 with so much time gone by and still so much radio silence about any extraterrestrial findings it's left many people across the world wondering is nasa telling us everything because as some believe It's possible the
1: civilian agency is far more sinister and secretive than it lets on, especially as its technology has advanced and documents from NASA's early days have been declassified.
0: So next time, we'll explore one of the main conspiracy theories surrounding NASA, that the civilian agency may really know more about extraterrestrial life than it lets on. And that information is deliberately being kept from the public.
1: While it brought a man to the moon and a robot to Mars, it's also possible that NASA isn't quite the heroic organization the government has made it out to be over all these years.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll be back next time with a new episode.
0: Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story.
1: And the official story isn't always the truth.
0: Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by A.P. Boland, edited by Amber Von Shassen and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.
3: Hi listeners, I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.